Pastor Lewis, that uh, has to be what a foretaste of heaven will be like. But you were to sing one more song, we would be here all morning. As I have goosebumps running up and down uh, my spine at the providence of God and how he orchestrates all things. As we will see, much of what uh, we will speak on, we just sang about. And that is always amazing to me. It's a privilege to stand before you today, uh, associated with our college, Texas Baptist College. Uh, I've got to tell you, I love our students. They are truly extraordinary. They are bright, they are intentional, and they are engaged most of the time. They are playful in right sorts of ways, which allows them to be serious in right sorts of ways. And it's a privilege uh, to be associated with them. It's also a privilege to be associated with Southwestern. At times, I walk across campus and am struck by a bit of nostalgia as I recall all the names I know that have walked these same paths. Those names you would readily recognize, books we read by them, but also those we don't know. The many who took what they were taught here and took it to the ends of the earth, some even laying down their lives. So I hope we don't forget the privilege that we have to be here. But it is also a privilege to open God's word with y'all. And so we are going to look this morning at one of the most profound truths in scripture. Indeed, it is the truth that could be said all truths point to. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We will look at verse 31 and 32 principally, but we're going to go ahead and read 31 through 39. So if you would, stand if you're able in honor of the reading of God's word. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Before we begin, let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you, gathered in this place, and we ask that you would be in our midst. But Lord, even as I say that, where can we be where you are not? 
for before we entered this room, you were here. You'll be here when we leave. For where can anyone go where you are not? And Lord, you are not more here than elsewhere. For where you are, you are all there. And you are everywhere. So Lord, we pray this morning that you would invite us into your midst. That in your presence, we may rest. And we know, Lord, that our claim is only because of what you have done for us in your son, Jesus Christ, who assumed human nature, lived a perfect life, and died for our sins. Lord, in that name and that name alone, we approach your throne with confidence. But Lord, we also pray that your spirit would stir in our hearts, open our eyes, that we might see and that we might hear from your word. Indeed, the very spirit by whom and through whom your word is written. Lord, instruct us, for we hear you gladly. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In these sets of scriptures, what we're reading is a conclusion to an argument. So Paul summarizes and concludes all that he's been saying, not just simply in chapter 8, but up to this point, all the way through Romans. And what a conclusion it is. It's a series of rhetorical questions. But the two we're going to look at this morning are what we might call the framing rhetorical questions. All that follow stem from or allude back to these first questions. It is an argument that reaches its right conclusion in these words. What shall we say of these things? These things being all that argument. The logical conclusion is quite simply, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now that's a simple claim, but what Paul is doing here is he is, is reaching back and grabbing hold to a very, very significant truth. God's presence with his people. It is not simply his presence, but God's presence being for his people. Indeed, this is what the covenant captures, doesn't it? Reaches all the way back. I will be your God and you will be my people. His presence with his people is significant. And there are times where God reassures his people of his presence. As a matter of fact, many of these usually wind up on our refrigerator or on posters or things you can buy from Hobby Lobby. So I'm gonna run through a brief reminder. The first one would be in Joshua. Joshua 1.9. Where God tells Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now we see it also in Isaiah, Isaiah 41.10, where through the prophet God says, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And one I know you have memorized, Zephaniah 3.17, that says the Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. 
He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. God's presence with his people is an immense comfort. But why is it so comforting? Well, reflect for a few moments on what we've already seen in the Psalms and already, already sang in the songs. Who it is that is with us? It is God, the creator of all things, who by the power of his word spoke all things into existence. As Job reminds us, he fastened the foundations of the universe. <laughs> Isaiah tells us he holds the waters in the palm of his hand. The nations are a drop in a bucket before him. He weighs the mountains in a scale. The mountains tremble in his very presence. They melt like wax before an open flame. Isaiah tells us, he is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, our holy God. Our holy God is a consuming fire, and he calls, he demands his people to be holy. It is this God who is in our midst. It is this God who is for us. But then maybe a question creeps in the back of your mind. Sure, I recognize that if God is for us, who can be against us? I recognize that as a general truth, but how do I know that God is for me? How can I share Paul's confidence? Well, this is where the next verse comes in. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, those are extraordinary words, but they are the basis of Paul's confidence and they are the basis of our confidence. So verse 32, again, says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I want us to take a look at a few moments uh, together this morning, the interplay between Paul's use of give here. What God gives and what we are given. So I want us to take a look at these in three ways. First, I want us to see who God gave. And then I want us to see why God gave. And then I want us to see what we are given by God giving him. So as we work our way through, I want us to take a, a look first and most closely to who it is that God gives. Now, I also am amazed at Paul's phrasing here. So verse 32, he who did not spare his own son. Why does Paul use the negative phrases here? Why does Paul put this in a negative statement? He tells us what God doesn't do. He doesn't withhold, he, he spares not. So Paul tells us what God doesn't do in order to affirm and more deeply drive home what God does do. But why does he do that? Well, we'll see what I think he's doing in just a few moments. But this negative phrasing leads us to this positive statement that he gave him up. But who did he give? God did not spare his own son. 
Now, notice Paul could have written, he who did not spare his son, but he doesn't do that. He adds this word own to make a, a special signifier that this was no mere human. This was the very son of God who was begotten from before all time, the eternally generated one, he who is co-eternal with the Father, he who is consubstantial with the Father. What Hebrews tells us, he is the radiance of his glory, that very glory that he will not share with anyone. It is, as the creed remind us, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. This is his son that he did not spare. Do not miss the profound truth of how our God saves us, not from a distance, not from calling out, but from investing himself in us. He did not spare his own son. Extraordinary. But why? Why did he give him? Why did he not spare him? Well, in a word, sin. We see here that he gave him up for us all. He gave him up for his people, and not a one is absent from this. He gave him up for us all. Now, sin is something that separates us from God. It is disobedience. And I want us to see how Paul describes this. So let's turn back a bit to Romans 3. To Romans 3, verse 9. Where Paul writes, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So these are totalizing categories. So all humans are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Any questions? <laughs> Paul's well, pretty clear. But, but, but certainly, we're not that bad, are we? Come on, I'm at least in, what, maybe the top 10%, maybe 5% on a good day of human beings. <laughs> certainly, that doesn't describe me. Well, let's remember what sin is. Even the smallest sin, that, that little white lie that we so easily excuse, that we brush off, is offensive to God. Now, as we have established, God is eternal. And so this offense of God to God by our little white lie is an eternal offense. An eternal offense. 
Now, Spurgeon was in the habit of reminding his people all the time that every sin, that little white lie, every sin is pregnant with all other sins. So what is entailed in one sin encompasses all sin. So that one little white lie encompasses all sin. And all that is an eternal offense to God. Not simply is it in our, in our actions that we're sinful, it's in our nature. So we are born into sin and we are sinful by nature. So there is a sense in which our very being stands before God in its sin as offensive. Now you begin to see that this great and mighty God that we sing about and pray about that gives such comfort is also a holy terror when we are in his midst, and we are always in his midst. And maybe you might say, look, I'm, uh, my teachers never know I don't do my homework, which we do, by the way, we always know. Or maybe your friends don't know of those sins that you cover over. A smile goes a long way. I wanted to remind us of what can be either the most encouraging or the most terrifying verse in all of Scripture. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So no, you, you can't avoid God. Your very being is in his midst. He sees it and knows it. We are unveiled before him. If I can quote my forebearer, it is a fearful thing for a sinner to fall in the hands of an angry God. This is what causes Paul to say back in, in Romans 7, 24. Feeling the weight of this, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It is a perplexity. And I think it is only when you begin to catch a sense of our utter despair before a holy God that you can begin to feel the relief, the joy, the utter profoundness of his next words. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. As Dr. Massey prayed, I want us to go and look at a verse he mentioned. It is as comforting as Hebrews is terrifying. It's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And this is where the mystery of the gospel far eclipses our ability, or at least my ability, to truly comprehend and to understand why. Verse 21 says, <clears throat> for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. To this day, my mind cannot wrap itself around all that God has done for us. He spared not his own son, his own son, but 
gave him up for us. It is truly a great gift. So all that offense, that eternal offense, that is our very being that is an affront to God, God himself took that offense and placed it on very God of very God. And in removing that offense from us, he places on us Christ's righteousness. That is utterly astounding. Do not ever grow weary of hearing the praises of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is who he gave and why he gave it. But what are we given in the midst of this? We are given his righteousness. But here, I think, is where that negative phrasing comes in. For it is his own son that he did not spare. God has an open-handed generosity. God gives us, out of his fullness, God gives us his very self. What more could be given? He did not spare. He did not give in half measures. He gives with open-handed generosity his very own son. <laughs> what else could you want? What else could be given? And if he gave his very own son, what would he withhold? But here is the beauty of it. That in Christ, we have all our good. And it is here where I'm going to try very, very hard not to lapse into sermon 2.0. Or sub-sermon in the midst of this sermon. In Jesus Christ, we have all our good. There is no good we could seek that is truly our good that we cannot have and do not have already in Jesus Christ. He is God's yes and amen to us. Remember Paul's words in Philippians? All those things that, that we boast in, all those things we want to hold on to, what does Paul call them? Rubbish. Rubbish. All of those things are not even worth speaking of when compared to the excellencies of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is our greatest good. Now, I want us also to see that it is, is God the Father who spared not his own son. But we're also told in Galatians that it is the son who gladly gave himself for us. I want us to see this. It's what theologians call inseparable operations. That we have God at work in all that God does. So that all that God does for us, it is all of God that is for us. I ran across a quote by A.W. Tozer as I was reading another book on the attributes of God. And it seemed to summarize nicely this very point. When God justifies a sinner, everything in God is on the sinner's side. All the attributes of God are on the sinner's side. It isn't that mercy is pleading for sinners, 
and the justice is trying to beat him to death, all of God does all that God does. Do you follow that? All of God does all that God does. It is not as though as mercy is pitted against God's justice. It is all of God that redeems us. He spared not his own son. This is why Paul can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? It is that confident boast. But finally, I want us to think briefly about the implications of this. For if God is for us, who truly can be against us? But if we reach back toward the tail end of Paul's argument, before he gets to the conclusion, we read again another one, another one of those verses we love to hold on to. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to, the purpose, to, according to his purposes, now, one of the things that we can be assured of if we rightly understand verses 31 and 32 is that this is not simply hypothetical. Uh, let me reiterate that. Because in hard times, it is very easy to quote this and to hold it as a, a fortune cookie mentality. Kind of hold on to it and I'll keep telling myself this and maybe I'll believe it. <laughs> But well, the good news is, is it's not up to you, it's up to God. So whether you believe it or not, God is working all things to the good of those who are called according to his purpose. This is not hypothetical. How do I know? <laughs> Look to the cross. He has forever declared his commitment to you in those hard times. He will never leave you or forsake you. Well, how do I know? He spared not his own son. Anchor your soul there. It is not simply hypothetical. But also, as we reach forward to the, the conclusion of Paul's conclusion, verses 37 through 39, if 28 is not hypothetical, these passages are not hyperbole. God, uh, excuse me, Paul is caught up in, in rapture. These are some of the most eloquent phrases coming from Paul. This is his oratory on display. But it's not merely relish. It is not him wanting to finish with a bang. It is him truly seeing the implications of the fact that if God is for us, who can be against us? But read these majestic words again. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is not hyperbole. How do we know, Paul? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not hyperbole, but a reality. 
that we can live into. What shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? And that is an extraordinary truth to which all of the truths point.